when you've got a species such as elephants, rhinos, lions, who are on the edge of extinction, let's be clear, we've killed about 95% of all elephants, rhinos, and lions in the last 100 years. So this is now, in terms of their survival, an emergency situation. The time for study is over. Welcome to another episode of Animalia, where we bring wildlife conservation, climate change, and social justice together to help people connect the dots and get involved. Today on Animalia, we are going detailed into the process of revitalizing some of the most corrupt, rundown, and poached national parks in Africa. We're doing so today with our guest, Mark Hiley. Mark is a British-born wildlife ranger, and he founded National Park Rescue in 2014 and currently heads a rescue operation of a team of 30 at Zimbabwe's Chisoria National Park. Chisoria has lost over 3,000 elephants before the operation moved in, just as an example. Mark also operates undercover as an ivory buyer arresting criminal traffickers and was elected as a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society in 1993 as well as being an award-winning filmmaker. Already responsible for saving thousands of elephants and other critically endangered wildlife, National Park Rescue aims to save a further 17 major national parks by the year 2040. I'm super excited to talk to Mark today. Yeah, so Mark, I thought it would just it would be fun to just start by understanding like a little more about National Park Rescue just high level and what is, you know, what what, you know, what's the the short pitch of it. And we're going to get through, you know, obviously we're going to go through the a walkthrough of, I think we should go through Chisoria. Does that make more sense? Because that's kind of a project you've, you've seen from. Well, sort of- it's, yeah. I mean, Chisoria National Park is the latest operation that we're running. National Park Rescue itself is a, a relatively small organization, but it is unique in that it only goes after dying national parks. So those are the national parks that are in danger of collapse. Uh, or closing down, and therefore in severe danger of losing all their wildlife, which can, you know, national parks, I don't know if, if you're aware, national parks are the biggest, usually the biggest of, of the wilderness areas left in Africa. What is, for, for, for people who haven't been to Africa, what is a national park? Because it's a bit different than it is here in the States. And And then, you know, what are the criteria? When you say dying national parks, what is that mean tangibly that, you know, sort of requires the needs of services like yours? Mm, okay. Well, for people that don't uh, that don't understand, I have to say most people I speak to in the world don't seem to understand the difference between reserves, national reserves, national parks, etc. So national parks are areas, usually huge areas, some, some the size of small countries that have been, the legal term is gazetted, i.e. turned from the legal status of perhaps farmland initially, or or just open, unprotected land into a legally protected status that is a national park. So national parks and national reserves are normally the largest areas in Africa which require protection. And as such, they've become the last safe havens for the majority of elephants, surviving elephants, uh, lions, rhinos, and, and other endangered wildlife. So there's a big difference between a national park or a national reserve and a reserve. 
So for instance, anybody could go to Africa and, and set up a reserve, which is basically a farm, a private reserve, and start trying to raise money to save their reserve, even though it might be tiny. You can buy a few animals to put on this reserve, and there are people doing that. So there's a lot of donor confusion about this. So you know, donors need to understand the difference because they need to be trying to save these critically important areas that are known as national parks and national reserves. It's very important. And then you also have reserves such as, I'm drawing a blank on the name, you'll, you'll know the, the, the gentleman in South Africa, I think it's Paul Hume, John Hume. John Hume, uh, yes. John Hume, that is essentially commercializing wildlife. Absolutely. What are your thoughts on on John Hume and his his? I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent, but like his position that the work he's doing actually helps conserve rhinos and and sort of supplies the demand of of rhino horn in a sustainable way versus poaching. Do you buy that argument or no? No, I absolutely don't buy it, and uh, and most conservationists don't buy it. I mean, yes, if you if you regard taking a, a wild animal like a rhino out of the wild and putting it on a farm with other rhino, and if you call that conservation, it's technically conserving something, I suppose, but uh, you're essentially turning a, a, a tremendous wild animal into a cow standing in a reserve, and then you are farming its horn, and you are supplying potentially a market which has already been proven to cause damage because we already know from the history uh, of previous sales that the effect of those sales is to expand the market it's very clear there is no doubt whatsoever so people like john hume are doing nothing but harm and there is no doubt about that uh, and people should not, be careful when they're listening to these arguments and yeah, not to mention the other obviously drastic difference there between the cow and rhino is Rhino horn actually has no functional usage. It doesn't. It's in fact, really keratin. Eric, like, yeah, um, it's yeah. same as a fingernail. So, so no, it's of course it's it's Chinese nonsense that there's any benefit to this stuff. But unfortunately, we're not going to change the the minds of you know a couple of billion people at any time soon. So <laughs> the important yeah. thing is to cut off the supply and securing national parks properly, which is something which isn't being done across Africa, securing national parks properly will stop the flow of wildlife, illegal wildlife products to China. And let's not forget, of course, that the pandemic we're suffering now started with the uh, illegal trafficking of, of wildlife, believed to be a, a pangolin, an animal that we help stop the trafficking of on a regular basis. Yes, while everybody's scrambling about trying to worry about a vaccine, everyone seems to have forgotten the fact that this came from wildlife. Instead of actually stopping the source, people are running around trying to find a cure it's bonkers isn't it yeah and for the listeners you know the bigger the bigger driver of a lot, most of this wildlife trafficking is not as much meat and consumption as it is traditional chinese medicine and traditional asian medicine because that's a problem in vietnam as well other parts of asia but these traditional you know sort of medicinal philosophies that are not really rooted in science but rooted in culture and you know culture is hard is hard to change frankly it is. It is indeed. Yeah. So, Mark, before we get into Chisoria, I just want to know a little more about your background and how you know you found your way from your upbringing to the work you're doing today. Sure. Well, I've I started in my twenties as a sort of expedition leader, stroke adventurer, running uh, expeditions to do 
various things without necessarily a lot of point. <laughs> There's a, the wonderful thing about what I'm doing now is a lot of point to it, you know, it actually has an impact. Whereas, you know, running around the Eastern Sahara, looking for lost villages or tracking Atlantic manta rays and doing that sort of thing didn't really do a lot of good in the world, I don't suppose. But, but so I've always, you know, been interested in adventure. And then that uh, it evolved over time into doing more worthy things, translocating rhinos from one place to another and doing this sort of thing and working in national parks so in my 20s i learned quite quickly about corruption and uh, i witnessed massive corruption that was causing the slaughter of a huge amount of wildlife back then uh, and i witnessed the big naive rich mega charities doing absolutely nothing about it and not really understanding what was going on so, you know, the poaching part itself was, as, it, as is the case now, only actually a small part of the problem. Corruption and incompetence is the number one killer of wildlife without any doubt whatsoever. So I became quite disillusioned after a while, I have to say, and, and ended up going off on a, on, a, on a tangent into the film and TV world for a while, which, which began with filming wildlife. And uh, you know, I did that for, for some years before returning again in 2012. And what... Was that genesis that brought you back to this on the ground, hands-on work versus the the filmmaking work? Well, good question. At that time, around 2012, if you remember, there were huge numbers of elephants being being slaughtered. Sometimes 80, 100 elephants in one go, in one incident, uh, and that was being reported all over the world. And I imagined at that time the same old nonsense going on, the, the huge amount of corruption and the big charities doing nothing about it, although their brochures, of course, will tell you they're saving Africa. The reality is, uh, and the figures speak for themselves, with 60% of our world's wildlife having been slaughtered in the last uh, 50 years since they've been operating, it, quite simply, the solution is not working. So I imagine that going on and I just thought, well, I need to go back, <laughs> to go back and try to do something. And I also think as you're older, you know, as you get older, you start questioning the point of what you're doing. And, uh, and at that time, I was thinking, well, the television I was making was, was wonderful fun, but, you know, it didn't really have a point. And once you've seen a program, that's it. Rarely does it get shown again. <laughs> so, so I thought, uh, no, I'm going to go back to what I used to do. I'm going to head back to Africa. So that was 2012. Got it. And then National Park Rescue as a organization, what year did that, was that formed? That was 2014. 14. 2000. Yeah. So I actually went on a tour of national parks, of dying national parks, to try to find out, you know, try to find the worst ones and see what was actually going on. And I discovered the same old nonsense. It was extreme corruption. In most parks that I visited, the rangers were, were deeply involved in the slaughter of wildlife. The charities are spending all their time running these cute workshops and paying ridiculous allowances and not seeing any of the complex systems of corruption that were right under their noses. So the wildlife was dying. But if you read their reports, you would think that it's being saved. But the reality on the ground is, is usually very different. And then diving into Chisarira as an example of one of these dying parks, <clears throat> I believe Chisarira is in Zimbabwe, correct? Yes, that's right. Got it. And is it fully in Zimbabwe? Does it also uh, bleed into other other neighboring countries? No, no, no. It's it's in Zimbabwe. Really it's in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe's third uh, biggest national park. So it's about two thousand square kilometers. So it's it's quite a big national park. Got it. And so when you when you talk about a dying national park, 
We, uh, yeah, it's a good question. We, what constitutes a dying national park? Well, unfortunately, most national parks, uh, or a large percentage of them, are in a, in a dreadful state. And I hoped when we set out that I would be able to download a list of the dying national parks. That would be easy. And then we just go after those parks and try to save them. Well, <laughs> to my surprise, there was no such thing. Uh, and we found no organisation currently existing that was going after them or trying to save the dying national parks. And don't forget, once a national park is gone, it then becomes, as I said earlier, de-gazetted. Uh, gazetted is, is, is when you turn a stretch of land uh, into a, a different legal status as a national park. So once these national parks get to a certain point, they can become de-gazetted by the government, turned back into farmland and sold off. When that happens, that's it. It's over forever. So that wilderness area now is gone. So it's, it's, it's equivalent in, in South America to a, a stretch of you know, Brazilian rainforest going. Once it's gone and turned into farmland, that's it. It's gone forever. So there was no list. So we set about one of the things that we went on to do uh, with my brilliant, inspirational colleague, Dr. Nar McCann, who, who you've, who's been on your program, I think. Yep, he has. And he, he has pioneered the, the creation of the first database of dying national parks. And the, the data points for that can include corruption. Usually these parks will have existing NGOs working there who might indeed in many cases be spending millions, but actually achieving nothing. In fact, usually the parks that we go into, these organizations have been in before and spent millions while the animals continue to die. So it's, yeah, it's a complicated situation out there, very complicated. One of the challenges is trying to educate donors to understand the difference between effective organizations that are actually making change on the ground and organizations that are doing nothing other than running workshops and pointless trainings and, and creating glamorous reports with lots of pretty pictures of, of elephants while the animals are actually dying. And in terms of the factors that lead a national park towards, towards death and demise, is it primarily sort of land development, you know, agricultural development and just other forms of, you know, sort of resource harvesting and exploitation alongside poaching? Or are there other, other things that I'm, I'm not aware of than those, those kind of two primary ones? Yeah, there's huge pressure on national parks. If you look at, if you go into Google Earth, you can sometimes see a very hard line around the, the outside of a national park where communities now surround national parks and the population is expanding so incredibly and terrifyingly quickly. So the, the, as time goes on, the pressure on these parks for their resources grows. And, and there are two types of primary, if we're talking about poaching, first of all, there are two types of poacher which people need to know about. There are what, what we call subsistence poachers. These are people who are usually from surrounding villages, typically poor. They will go into national parks if it's easy to do so, because for them, it is, if there's no law enforcement, if there's failed law enforcement, this is the lowest hanging fruit for them. So they can walk into a national park, set some snares, and, uh, and wait for an animal to walk into one of those snares. That's a subsistence poacher. Yeah. Then you have your professional poachers, and professional poachers are, are, are a different animal indeed. They are usually backed by funding, which is usually connected to, to, to Chinese or Asian funding. There may be a series of middlemen, but ultimately they, they can be well-funded, they can be very well-armed, extremely dangerous. And these people are going in, sometimes hunting to order. They may be looking for, they may have an order for eight pairs of tusks, for instance, 
and they will go into a national park and they will perhaps stay in that national park for days until they collect everything they need and then they leave. So there's a huge amount of pressure. Then, of course, we get on to corruption. And when you have a large number of government staff living in a national park, corruption is a big problem. So quite often it's the corruption and the people who are living in the national park who are actually emptying it. So it changes from country to country, but it's uh, it's a big problem and it's a complicated one. Hmm. So looking at Chisoria, were there any specific data points you can sort of call back on that, you know, because as you mentioned at the time, there was no database of dying national parks. It, you know, you sort of had to find these on your own and, and figure it out. Uh, now it sounds like <clears throat> they're, you know, through some of the work of Niall and others, that's starting to happen. But what were there any data points that made Chisoria stand out to you? Was there anything else unique about Chisoria in terms of its structure? Or, you know, did you feel like the local authorities were going to be easier to work with? Or do you feel it's such a strategic target for specific reasons? I think it's home to four of the, the big five wildlife species, which I want to talk about too, in terms of the why we have the big five. And it feels like then everything outside the big five becomes secondary to conserve sometimes. But but yeah, getting to put that aside, was there anything about Chisoria, any other factors, either from a data standpoint or just from a strategic anecdotal standpoint that made it sort of a good early target for your program? Yes. So, well, first of all, Chisoria National Park is inside the Casa area. And this is an area, the Casa region is what we generally term as the front line of the war on wildlife. So about 50% of Africa's remaining elephants exist inside this, this group of countries known as the Kaza or parts of the group of countries that make up the Kaza region. So this national park is not only inside the Kaza region, which everyone is desperately trying to focus on and save, but it's also strategically a key park for wildlife, which is moving elephants, particularly through corridors. It's a key stepping stone for within the Kaza area. So strategically, it's a very important part for elephants, but but it was in great danger. So in the lead up to our arrival, over 3000 elephants have been killed in this national park. And as is typical in national parks uh, across many countries in Africa, the law enforcement effort was was somewhat hampered. There were no working vehicles. So in a national park, the size of you know 2000 square kilometers, you cannot deploy your rangers uh, across the national park unless there are working vehicles. That requires resources. The roads had been completely uh, were, were completely derelict. The road network was inaccessible. So even if you had a vehicle, getting it into the, the corners of the national park so you can deploy your rangers to defend the elephants from poachers, for instance, was impossible. So a huge amount uh, of investment was required to get the law enforcement functioning again. Uh, and that just wasn't happening. Got it. And I believe, is it is it correct that the, the, lar- the country with the largest population of wild elephants is Botswana, which is neighboring to Zimbabwe? Or is that, is that not true? No, that's correct. About 130,000 elephants uh, now uh, live in Botswana, which is about, it's about a third of all elephants left in Africa. So it is a staggering amount of that- elephants. Have they determined, I mean, we're going to go, go off a little bit on a tangent here just for a second, the, the elephant deaths from this summer that were, you know, a big mystery, maybe still are, 
Do you know if they've determined what caused the sort of the mass elephant death that we saw in Botswana this year? Probably by the end of this, something like 700 elephants uh, have died in that area, which is uh, given that such a small number of elephants remain, it's a serious tragedy. It's a serious tragedy. Now, unfortunately, the government blocked uh, elephants without borders and others from going in to conduct independent investigations, which means that we'll never know what the actual cause of those deaths was. The government have, have jumped on one of the one of the uh, theories, which was that uh, it could be natural causes and neurotoxin in the soil, but nobody actually knows. It's just as likely to be caused by poisons, um, which could be put down by farmers or lack of law enforcement, all kinds of things which would indeed embarrass the government. Natural causes provides no embarrassment for the government whatsoever. But unfortunately, it, uh, it's also setting a precedent in the country for, for this type of thing, which could happen again. And the government's sort of rationale for blocking independent investigators, that's COVID? Like, what, what is their rationale for not allowing anybody in to like, figure out what happened? Yeah, there's been a regime change. And uh, the previous president, Ian Karmer, was a big supporter of wildlife. He stopped all hunting in the country and he created this huge, turned Botswana into the number one tourist resort for, for wildlife uh, tourism in Africa. And it was a tremendous success. Then, you know, elephant, it was a safe place for elephants to be. And now there's 130,000 elephants in, in the country who, who aren't leaving anytime soon. And then another president takes over. Ian Karma did the, the maximum term that he could. And the new president's come in and he has the opposite view. So he wants to, one of his campaign promises was to reduce the number of elephants in the country. He then held a conference uh, where he handed out elephants' footstools to all the attendees a wildlife conference. So it was an immediate sign that this man's attitude to wildlife is somewhat different. So actual he's taking elephant footstools? Actual elephant footstools were handed Jeez. out to the senior attendees of a wildlife conference in pretty Botswana. Much, pretty much sums up, sums up who he is. Yeah, it does. So, so he's taking a, a sort of exploitation strategy with wildlife rather than, rather than the attitude of, of Ian Karma. Which, which is a tragedy for wildlife. And, and that extends to, you know, secretive operations and, and keeping foreigners and outside people, you know, who are actually in the country trying to, trying to help yeah. wildlife out of anything, well, when uh, you're, which is a tragedy for wildlife. Yeah, I mean, when you're doing, frankly, shitty things, and all people in all regimes that do shitty things, privacy is becomes utmost important because you know what you're doing is wrong, would not be supported on international level. And, uh, you know, that's, we see that with toxic regimes all over the world, right? Whether, right. whether you see that with, with, with Putin in Russia, with, with Assad in Syria, with Iraq and Turkey. And even we've seen tastes of that with Trump in the United States, you know, wanting to sort of, you know, close off anybody that is evaluating them. And uh, if you're not a yes man or a yes woman, you are not part of the regime and you don't have access. <laughs> they they, um, they can yeah. operate under a veil of secrecy. And so, so suddenly when this type of leader gets into power, everything becomes top secret. Uh, and that includes wildlife, uh, anything to do with wildlife. And, you know, foreign organizations coming in and meddling with their wildlife, they start demonizing the whole effort to save wildlife as being colonial. And, you know, the next phase usually is that they then start dealing with the Chinese directly. And I suspect that in Botswana, it won't be long before we start hearing that more baby elephants are being sold to the Chinese and, you know, the usual stuff that happens in these dictatorships. <clears throat> All right. Well, 
that that's a rabbit hole of despair that you and I could easily go down. So okay. let's yeah. let's pull it back to Chisaria. Before we yeah. get back into Chisaria, I do want to just quickly ask uh, the question I, I I alluded to earlier about the Big Five. So for listeners, this notion of the this Big Five as you know is a critically endangered species. I believe this rhino, elephant, uh, lion, leopard, and buffalo. But right. I'm, I'm curious, Mark. Like, do you think this special classification of these five species is actually effective and conducive? You know, like the you know, there's obviously the 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 animal that comes to mind that is not in the big five that is under constant attack is the pangolin, and and the pangolin does not get a lot of media notoriety. I think you know its potential link to coronavirus is the first time the world even heard of this species, you know, for those that don't work in conservation or in trafficking. But I'm just wondering if that, like, that that sort of special classification for the big five, because I'm, I'm thinking to myself, well, if the pangolin is the most trafficked animal in the world, outside of humans, of course, then, you know, what is the criteria for the, to be in the big five? And is that actually helping or hurting species that are not in the, in that list of five? Yeah, it's it's a problem. It's a concept known as sexy species. And what happens is that in, in the world is that species that look nice and cute to us get saved uh, and the ugly species don't. It's a problem. It is, it is a big problem. But the pangolin is the most adorable thing I've ever seen. Well, they are actually extremely <laughs> adorable, the, yeah. the cutest looking things. And I think a baby pangolin is about as cute as any creature can possibly be. But for some reason, it's not generally perceived as, as as a sort of sexy species. You don't see people, you know, you see plenty of people with pictures of elephants on their walls. You'll never see somebody with a pangolin on their wall. But they yeah, are you haven't been in my adorable house. creatures. No. Oh, really? <laughs> There's a pangolin sure. on the wall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're adorable creatures. And the cruelty involved is absolutely monstrous. I have to say, you know, as I go through life, you know, I'm in a position where I, I have to witness, you know, the irony is you're, you're, you're attracted to, to Africa and these wild places because you love animals. But then when you go there uh, and you do what I do, you see the most horrific things on the planet. And my view of the human race is, well, I'm ashamed to be human. Let me say that. I'm ashamed to be human. The things that people do, it's absolutely disgusting. Yeah. But in the case of pangolins, you know, they, they capture, I mean, the number of pangolins. You, you, you re- keep on reading about the seizures in Hong Kong of eight tons of pangolin scales. I mean, the thousands and thousands and thousands of these wonderful little creatures that just have their scales ripped out with pliers by these people. You know, Actually, those are probably the lucky ones because a lot of them get sellotaped up, rolled up into balls, sellotaped up, and they get trafficked across in suitcases to, to the Far East. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's, absolutely it's astonishing. Uh, just the sort of the, the, the vile, yeah, the vile mm. nature of it and exactly um yeah yeah i mean i i I often for myself feel ashamed to be human just in covering some of these stories and i don't Mm. know if i could do what you do and and have a functional relationship with another human being Mm. (laughs) frankly like i that i would find that difficult so kudos to you to, to even to even sort of you know kind of get through that day after day year after year and still and still be someone who to do what you do Right, you have to have some degree of hope and optimism, because yes. if you've given up all of it, there would be no point in your work. And so, you know, the fact that you can see those things and go through those things and still find, 
you know, sort of sources of hope and optimism, you know, I think speaks, speaks to your character and other, other people in your shoes. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I have to say sometimes, I've got to be honest, I've become immune to it. And I realize occasionally that I am uh, immune to it because I've seen now so many elephants and other animals torn up in the most horrific ways that I realize it doesn't consciously affect me anymore. But I had a, you know, part of what we have to do is, is uh, we take people from the local community because we believe that, that people in Africa need to save their own wildlife rather than foreigners coming in and doing it for them. That isn't sustainable. So, so 95% of our staff are local people and they are absolutely inspirational. You would not believe the skills and the, 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 the incredible characters come out of these just remote villages in the, in the middle of Africa surrounding national parks. It's, it's a subject for another, another podcast completely. Uh, yeah, definitely. But, um, yeah, it is. But we have to train our rangers regularly. And we have special forces. Some of the toughest special forces guys come out, often volunteering their time to come out and, and train the rangers and pass on their skills. One of the incidents recently we had, I was taking some a couple of these special forces guys back to their aircraft and we encountered a poached elephant just by chance. And uh, so I was walking around this elephant and, and looking at the situation. One of these guys just broke down. You know, he just broke down. I interviewed him at that moment and he says, never seen anything so horrific. And I realized, and this is somebody who's been to Afghanistan and seen the most horrific things. And uh, he was deeply affected, almost crying by it. And I realized that I've obviously become very hardened to it. But as you say, it's a survival mechanism and I wouldn't be able to do what I do unless uh, I, I had that sort of mental protection. Yep, absolutely. All right, so back to Chisoria. And, you know, well, this is where we're, we are going to move this towards a, a positive outcome because uh, you really have revived and brought new life to this park in incredible ways. Where did you start? So you identified Chisoria. It meet, I met your criteria on being a park that is, you know, dying, which we talked about what is step one? Like where it's seems like there's so many things that need to be done, right? Where do you, where do you start? Like what was the starting point for Chisoria? Yeah. Uh, well, it's a big job. <laughs> it's a very big job. So you need, we, we have about 30 staff and, and in fact, I'm the only white member of staff in the park. Everyone else is black Zimbabwean. We, so we recruit from the villages. So recruiting drive begins as soon as we move in to find good people uh, to come in the park and come into the park and and, uh, help save it. So that's important. We have to buy vehicles because we need to deploy rangers to different parts of the park. We believe in preserving funds. So we only buy secondhand vehicles. We're very strict about that. So we buy good secondhand vehicles and we, we reinforce them and do them up for the national park. We need things like tractors and graders to be able to, to transform the road network because if you can't access these remote parts of, of the national park, then you can't deploy rangers and you can't protect elephants from poachers. So if you have an area that's inaccessible, then it's fully accessible by poachers, which they discover quite quickly. So there's a huge list of things. It takes six months just to set up. It, it's a huge job. It really is. What are those initial conversations like with officials? Because you know, for a lot of folks that you know don't do work in Africa, in these parks, just read about and hear about a lot of corruption, a lot of distrust, you know, sort of uh, disorganization. How much of that is real? What's, what's true? I mean, it's depends on the regime, of course, too. There's no, no, you know, no one regime like another exactly. But at the time, 
you worked on Chisria and entered Chisria, what was the dynamic with both the, you know, kind of overall Zimbabwe government and officials, and then the local government and officials within the region of Zimbabwe, the northern region you were in, what, where did that start? And what was step one of building that trust with each other? It's difficult for me, James, to be able to talk about a specific government. We've worked with a number of governments across Africa, and everyone is completely different. So I can only talk generally about those governments. But in the case of in the case of Zimbabwe, of course, Robert Mugabe was in power. So we had to, you know, I specifically had to go in and, and deal with Robert Mugabe's government and try to persuade them to let us move into this, what is a significant, you know, National Park is a significant proportion of a country. They're huge areas. And you're asking sometimes governments that are quite anti-foreigner. Some have a bad relationship with Britain because of colonial histories. And you're asking a foreign British organization to to go in and take over a significant part of that country. It's quite a big ask, if you think about it politically. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, you have the problem in a lot of countries, conserving wildlife is not a priority for them. You have to remember that these countries have a, a different set of values often. You've, often you've got leaders who are quite simply trying to fill their pockets for as long as they're in power. I couldn't say that about Zimbabwe, of course, where we're operating currently, but you know, other countries may be or may not be. And so the last thing in the world they may want to do is stop the flow of ivory coming from the national parks, which is being sold to the Chinese. So when an organization comes in and says they're going to shut down the corruption and shut down the flow of ivory, that's not always something they want. It's a very complicated situation. However, if you're a big one of these giant rich NGOs, and you're just going to go into a national park and hand out lots of allowances to people for showing up to their workshops, and, and you'll have no impact on corruption whatsoever, and the flow of ivory coming out of the national parks will not be impacted in any way, and you'll get backhanders as a minister, you might get backhanders in the way of allowances, and nothing will change, well, those people you'd be very happy to let in. Yeah? It's a complicated situation. It is. So sometimes there has to be, if, if you're an effective organization and you want to go into a national park and shut down corruption and you need government approval to do it, it's a complicated negotiation. <laughs> it really is. And what, where is your initial, when you started in Chisoria, where is your initial funding come from? And I know we're going to get to how, you know, the ultimate goal is to make the park itself sustainable financially, which I think is really, really important. And I can't emphasize enough how important that is. But initially, you know, you got to be pulling funding from somewhere to, to, to deploy those resources for you and your team. Where is that initial funding coming from? Yeah, in our case, the funding comes from a handful of people who believe passionately in what we're doing. We've never actually launched to the public. We're only starting to do that now. So since we began, all of our funding has come from a tiny handful of people. So some film stars and, uh, and a few wealthy individuals. So, you know, once we identify a park, we then have to speak to the government and, and see what the potential is for us to go in and, and save that park. And then we have to talk to our, our backers, meet with them to see if they feel passionate about saving this particular park and will support us. So we've been very lucky in being able to, to do everything that we've done so far from this handful of backers. But unfortunately, the impact of COVID has meant that some of them now just can't afford to keep supporting us. So that's why we are now launching to the public 
and we're hoping that people will see the incredible work we're we're doing uh, and we are making change real world change while you know the entire landscape is failing to do exactly that and we're hoping that they'll they'll see what we're doing and support us yep <clears throat> and so once with chisoria you know you've identified chisoria you've sort of liaison with the government you start building that trust you line up the funding from your backers then what comes next is it is it do you first need to clamp down on poaching before you train up resources to do that at scale do you focus on local communities first do you do, you do a deeper assessment of the condition of the park once you're in what what is the sort of first step after after that yeah, all of the above. I mean, you need you need to engage the communities at the same time, and and the situation is is very complicated. You often have tribal challenges. So, in the case of Chisorira National Park, for instance, Robert Mugabe employed primarily Shona tribe people, which was which was his own tribe. So he focused funds and education mostly on the on the Shona people and so the national parks tend to be the majority of people working for government are Shona now this area where the national park is is actually a Tonga area which is a completely different tribe so you've got this strange situation where you have a Shona tribe working inside the national park and then you've got Tonga tribe mostly Tonga people surrounding the national park yeah. So you've got uh, multiple layers of things to worry about. Yeah, I mean, in, in other national parks, uh, we've had problems with, which is, again, a common, a common thing across Africa where people are connected. So uh, that means that you've got staff who have some kind of link to somebody in government uh, and they got there not because of their ability, but because of their connections. This connected is a big word in Africa. And so and those people can't be touched. They usually can't be fired. They usually don't know how to do their jobs. They're often involved in corruption because they've got to pass some of the money that they earn back up to the person that gave them the job. So you've got multiple layers. You've got the, the, the connected layers. You've got the, the tribal layers. Huge challenges with management. It's very complicated. And unless you can understand and see how this works, it's going to be impossible for you to really change what's going on. Got it. What was... What was the most difficult aspect of Chisoria specifically? And I know that, you know, the, the biggest challenge will change park to park, but for Chisoria, looking back, what was the, what was the biggest challenge you had to overcome? The biggest challenge, I suppose, the biggest challenge is motivation, to be honest, is getting people motivated to, to actually go out and do what they need to do. Let's be clear. Being a ranger is a tough dangerous job you are effectively going to a war going to war against a potentially armed enemy every day of your life you know it, there's no soldier in the world that does that it's it's a dangerous job the conditions are extremely harsh you you're in 40 50 degrees heat in the middle of the bush there are snakes everything wants to kill you <laughs> right elephants want to kill you yeah uh, even the, even, the, even you. the species you're trying to protect are exactly trying to kill yeah, you everybody wants to kill you. Poachers want to kill you. Nothing wrong with that, but that's... that's yeah. yeah. No, so I mean, everything that moves around your feet, you know, wants to kill you. You know, the elephants want to kill you. The poachers want to kill you. It's a dangerous job and the reward is very small. 
So, you know, unfortunately, it's a reality that if you're a government employee, if you work for the government and you're a government rangers, and, and to, to be clear, there are private rangers and there are government rangers. Yeah? Uh, and if you're a government member of staff and you're getting paid very little money, you know, the incentive for you to go out and risk your life every day is, is, is minimal. So creating incentive schemes that work and motivate people is, is a critical factor. It's, it's the fuel in the engine that actually makes this work. And training isn't it. Training is important, but these big organizations, the mega organizations that go in, do a bit of training, hand out some allowances and leave and say, there we go, we've just saved some wildlife. It's absolute nonsense. It's a cycle of nonsense and it doesn't have an impact. So training is a small part of what needs to be done in Africa. And I know there are, there are lots of uh, organizations setting themselves up, ex-soldiers, et cetera, a lot of them from America, uh, coming to Africa, doing training and saying that they're saving Africa. It doesn't save Africa. It's a tiny, tiny piece in the puzzle. Yeah. What, what would you say is the biggest change that National Park Rescue has brought to Wildlife Park, National Park revitalization that others haven't, you know, done enough of or overlooked because certainly you're not the first to recognize the problem and try to solve it. But it seems like from what I've read, your program has been able to make more progress in a short period of time than most other efforts have historically. What would you say are like, you know, what is, what is that change, you know, that, that unique aspect of your approach and your team's approach that you really think above all else and obviously these things are multifaceted, but what is, you know, the, the, the thing that stands out to you that is different with your approach than others in the past and has proven to be highly effective? Well, that's, it's not, not a very short answer, but it's an important one. It is, first of all, understanding the difference between law enforcement and academia. We have this strange situation, a little bit of history is required to understand the answer to this. Let's just go back in time a little bit. Let's go back 100 years. Anything to do with wildlife was an academic pursuit. Yeah? And we still assume, still to this day, that anything to do with wildlife needs people who are doctors of zoology, you know, doctors of biology, people who are academics. They will solve the problem. But go forward, back 100, uh, go forward 100 years again to today, and the problems facing wildlife are not zoological problems. They aren't academic problems. They are law enforcement problems. So poachers coming into national parks, that is a law enforcement problem. It is, it is an incursion. It is an illegal incursion. And somebody with a, a degree in zoology is not equipped to go out and stop somebody with an AK-47 uh, and a lot of money and a land cruiser and maybe a team and everything else. They're not equipped to go out and deal with that. And they don't know how to deal with it. They don't have the training to deal with it. So it's a fundamental problem that donors need to wake up to. The organizations that are making an impact are organizations like African Parks, like National Park Rescue, who are making, who are law enforcement focused. You know, when you've got a species such as elephants, rhinos, lions, who are on the edge of extinction, let's be clear, we've killed about 95% of all elephants, rhinos, and lions in the last 100 years. So this is now, in terms of their survival, an emergency situation. The time for study is over. It's as simple as that. So the problem that we have is a law enforcement problem, 
not an academic problem. And donors really need to understand that because it's the donors who have the power to send their money to well-meaning, very nice and wonderful people, the big charities who send you cuddly toys and whatever else. It's up to them. They have the power. If they send their money to academic organizations, academic run organizations, they will have a completely different impact to if they send their money to somebody like African Parks you know, or, or National Park Rescue or other people who are focused on law enforcement. So to answer your question, James, I'm sorry it's a long one. The fundamental difference between us and the majority of people operating across Africa is that we are focused on law enforcement and the engagement of local communities. Yeah, those are the fundamental differences. And in Chisora National Park, since we've uh, arrived, uh, poaching has been reduced by over 95%. Uh, elephant poaching is reduced by 90%. Arrests have gone up 550%. Staff available patrols over 250%, etc., etc. Lion numbers are up 40%. It, there's a tremendous difference. And anybody visiting the park will immediately see that whereas before we arrived, there were no animals. Now they will be surrounded by elephants and they'll see loads of different species and have an incredible time. The difference is very obvious. Now, if you produce a report, if you're a big organization, you produce a very glamorous report with lots of pictures of elephants and you doing training and whatever else, that is, the, that is not reality. That is a brochure. So people need to understand. And it's very difficult because the big organizations are obviously trying to protect themselves and they sell themselves very well. But you have to go there. The only way a donor can know is to go there and see what's actually happening. And the sad reality is when you go to most of these national parks that the big organizations claim to be saving, those national parks are dying. You know, got it. The local community part is really, really important. And I just want to take a minute to sort of dive into that. How have you been able to engage local communities in Chisoria? And, you know, what, what does that look like today? So what, you know, what, how is that different from where it, what or what, where it was before you arrived in terms of the local community efforts um, and attention being, you know, put towards conservation and, and what does that look like today? Sure. So uh, a lot of organizations will go in and bring in all their foreign staff and, uh, you know, the moment they leave, it all goes back to how it was before. And as I've said, the impact is very little. We believe that local people should be saving their own national parks. So making people understand the importance of biodiversity, of protecting these areas, both financially for them and for the future of their country. Wildlife is intrinsically linked to their future prosperity. So it is critical that for the benefit of local people that these parks survive. Now, that's the first thing is making people understand that and then making them motivated to want to do something about it and then giving the op giving them the opportunity to do something about it and that's what we do so we go into communities and we find brilliant people who fulfill all kinds of different jobs they might be a driver they might be a ranger they might be a mechanic they might be somebody who who's brilliant at working on the fire team putting out fires building roads whatever it is there are many many different jobs and the most staggering thing is that you, you can walk into the remotest village where really they have nothing. They live in mud huts. Uh, there's no electricity. 
There's just absolutely nothing. And to be honest, if you went there a thousand years ago, I don't believe it would look any different. But you would not believe the skills, the motivation, the brilliance, the characters that come out of these villages is inspirational. We've just taken on, we've now employed the first all-female ranger team to be working inside a real national park. And uh, the success has been absolutely staggering. But we've taken these girls, we decided to find the, some of the, the the poorest women who would, who would perhaps benefit from it the most. So we've, we took the strategy of taking on unmarried mothers and we went into the communities and we did various, uh, put them through their paces <laughs> till we found uh, the right people. And they have just been incredible. You know, that every bit as tough as the men. There's no corruption whatsoever. My God, they're hardworking and they're tough. They really are. They are truly an inspiration. And these girls now have been in the newspapers around the world and and it's been a tremendous success. It really has. There's another organization called IAPF run by a good, good friend of mine called Damien Manda. And he's had, he employs more women than anybody else. And, and he also is absolutely brilliant and has discovered this incredible uh, resource of these of the women in these societies there's the and, the black mambas as well right yes the black mambas but i think they're working on a reserve somewhere okay. that's quite a small setup you, you can't really i think hold hold uh, hold a torch to uh, uh damien mandu has got something like 250 uh, women now at iapf i think and and increasing that more and and of course our team you know working in a in, in a in a proper national park and doing doing an incredible job absolutely incredible job so the engagement with you know i love these people and every morning i do the morning muster in the national park and they all line up and proudly tell me what they what they achieved yesterday and they get their orders for the day and uh, really i wish i wish the donors could be standing every day and listening to the passion and the pride that they have in their work it's absolutely incredible so so there's no doubt that the solution uh, going forward is is having people save their own protected areas and they are more passionate than any donor I've ever found. Hmm. And lastly, in terms of sustainability, you know, it's, it's important, right. That these parks sustain themselves financially in terms of the costs that go into protecting them, you know, whether that's, you know, continued training, you know, vehicles, equipment upkeep, bringing in new technology to detect poaching and, you know, track, you know, poaching paths, veterinary work where we're needed and necessary for wildlife. I mean, there, there's co- there's real cost to this work, but you know, it's critical. We, we could run across a, a threshold and a chasm, if you will, where it's not continuing to rely on just, you know, asking wealthy people for checks and donations, because that is a, that is a hard game to sustain. And, you know, I believe a lot of your work too has, has been centered around ensuring that these parks can, sustain themselves what does that mean and how 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 do you go about it and what what does it mean for a national park to sustain itself and its conservation work and you know what are those actual kind of sources of revenue that that make that possible yeah the reality is that the sad reality is that without the sustained presence presence of some kind of international operator national parks will collapse it's, it's as simple as that so the question is so we, we cannot remove the uh, operators 
such as African Parks, National Park Rescue, IAPF, etc., uh, you can't remove them completely from the system. What you can do is make them as, sustain as, as sustainable as possible. So setting up systems, we've created the first ever virtual currency for a national park, which is really showing itself to be a pioneering success. So rangers get rewarded with this currency we've created called sables. And in the future, visitors to the national park will be able to buy sables and exchange them for things they can do in the national park. And then that in turn goes to reward the rangers. That's a sustainable system which can continue long after, you know, long after our, our operations have shut down. But it will still require some element of management. And ultimately, there's a bigger question. And I think, James, it's, it's probably another subject for a completely different podcast is because it's such a huge subject is what is a sustainable future for uh, the last wild places on earth? Because the dependency on charity and, and, and giving, it's not sustainable and it's not reliable. And so something new is needed if we're serious about keeping these parks safe for the next hundred years. We need something new. I mean, it should be, you know, many people believe that charity is a problem because charity is externalizing what is effectively a government responsibility to keep the protected areas of a country safe. That should be the responsibility of government who should be doing it properly. So charity allows governments to say it's not our responsibility. We'll let somebody else do it. It's, it's a problem. It needs debating. Perhaps the, 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 the future involves almost uh, like a United Nations military effort to secure the last protected spaces or they will go. It's as simple as that. Yeah, it's a, we it's need a... To, to a debate. But what we do is we set up systems uh, such as a community ration supply scheme, stables, etc., which make it as sustainable as possible so that in the future we'll be able to have a minimum staff in a national park keeping that machine going. But the ability to step out completely and, and allow that park to continue, I'm afraid we're just not there. We're just not there. The reality is that if you step out completely, uh, the national park will, depending on the government that's in charge, of course, very quickly go back in many cases to how it was before. Yeah, the, the conundrum it seems here is, you know, a lot of African governments are are not you know, extremely wealthy. And these, you know, these are countries that don't have GDPs, you know, of the, you know, United States and some Western Europe or, or China. So, you know, they're not, they're not sitting on an abundance of funds. And it seems like a majority of economic growth for these countries comes in natural resources and, and agriculture, which is essentially, you know, kind of land exploitation in different, different ways. Those then come with complicating things for wildlife, you know, because, you know, wildlife can sort of get in the way of that work. And then if, and, you know, if, if you're Zimbabwe, right. Or Botswana and your, your biggest source of, of revenue is China and, you know, China has more or less disregard for the externalities as they'll, they would call it of wildlife that we know they're anything but externalities, but that's how they would phrase them. You know, you can't not deal with China because you can't, you know, sort of not fund your government. And so like, yeah, it, it seems like a very difficult place where there isn't a obvious path that is so clear cut. And then you can just say, you know, any government regime that's not following this path are, are just, are, you know, 
are just evil and bad because it is incredibly complex. So, you know, I don't like for me personally, I don't know a real solution to this until we get to a point where we actually start to quantify the economic value of wildlife in terms of the role they play in sequestering carbon, maintaining, you know, our environment, our climate. And we actually can say, hey, every elephant alive is actually worth, you know, $60,000 a year, whatever, in terms of the, you know, the work it's doing for avoiding negative costs. But that then has to be funded on a global basis, right? Because, you know, those, those, those sort of opportunity costs, those negative costs that are, were sort of capturing by having the wildlife there that are playing their role in maintaining balance in this world have to be kind of funded by the governments of the countries that sort of benefit the most by keeping, by not, by, by maintain, maintaining things. And that's the more developed, you know, Western and Eastern countries. So it just, that feels like the path forward ultimately for me, but it, it, how we get there with the way we have, you know, without international trade and, you know, nationalism and all these other factors just seems really, really, really difficult. I think, yeah, they're very good points, James. Absolutely. And, you know, there are things to the, the, the environment in Africa is very different. And one of the great problems, one of the great challenges we have is overlaying, trying to overlay Western solutions and Western thinking onto African problems. It doesn't work. Fundamentally, People do not think of elephants generally in Africa the way they do in, in America. So when you look at an elephant, when, when an American looks at an elephant, other than the hunters, of course, they, they see something intelligent, deserving respect, complex society, remarkable, inspirational creature. Most Africans do not see elephants that way. Most Africans think of elephants the way we think of rats. Elephants, you must remember, kill people. They kill children. They kill human beings. Yes, of course, they're angry with us. Nearly every elephant in existence has probably seen a friend or family member wiped out, wiped out by, uh, brutally by, by a human being at some point. They hate us. It's as simple as that. I live with elephants, and I can tell you these animals hate us. I have never culled an elephant. I have never got close enough to an elephant to touch it because it would probably kill me before I did that. The only time I've ever touched an elephant is when we dart an elephant to remove snares or something like that. So you need to understand these animals hate us. Now, I have no doubt that elephants divide up the world as we do. And when a matriarch elephant leads her herd, as she has, as, as the matriarchs before her have for thousands of years, potentially, I think they believe this is their land. And now that they arrive this year, and now somebody's put a fence around it and grown a crop on it, and doesn't want them to come through. Well, those elephants are often angry. They will rip down fences. They will eat that food. And if any humans come anywhere near them, they will tear them in two. These are angry animals, not without reason. If it was humans the other way around, who had been 95% of us have been wiped out by another species. And, and now we, we're taking the last of their land. I'm pretty sure we'd react the same way. But you need to understand that Africans do not generally think of elephants the way we do in the West. So that's one problem. Now, if you could imagine if a Western country could sell their rats, if a poor Western country could sell their rats for millions and millions of dollars to a foreign nation, I think they'd be pretty keen to do that. <laughs> right? So that's what's going on. So, you know, in the case of Botswana, remember the current president, one of his popular 
promises to get into power was to reduce the number of elephants, you know? So people don't like elephants in Africa. So either they pay their way through tourism or they get sold and their body parts get sold. They're shot and the ivory is sold and traded to, to China and, and the other, uh, other Asian countries. So when you have a government in power that wants short-term income, and they want to fill their pockets as quickly as possible, they're not thinking, James, about the long-term value of an elephant. They're yeah. thinking about the short-term value of an elephant. Well, what, I, what I'm getting at, and I'm, glad, I'm so glad you made that point because I don't, I don't think any of us you know, in the Western part of the world make that analogy to rats. And you're right. I don't think even you know, you know, people who love animals and love wildlife here, a lot of them would object to you know, rats being, being sold overseas if, if it, if it lined their pockets. Especially if those rats were killing, killing their families. Correct. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Which, which, yeah, I mean, they can by being disease carriers, right? I mean, it's not, you know, it doesn't, it's not as widespread, of course, as, as the, as the elephant and other wildlife conflicts are in Africa, but it does happen here. But I think what I'm getting at is what needs to happen is not that those African countries should be solely responsible for recognizing the long-term value of the elephants. And then they're solely responsible themselves to structure their, their you know, economic policies accordingly, but that the developed countries, the China's, the United States, the very abundant wealthy countries should be recognizing that and paying these African countries every year to maintain. Correct. Them. So that it is short-term. I believe income. it's the only solution. It's the only solution. The only way, you know, if, if every time something happens in Af- in Africa, I remember what I was in uh, Zimbabwe when Cecil the lion was shot by a hunter, and uh, that became a worldwide story. And you know, the amount, the millions and millions of angry people around the planet about this about this lion that had been shot was to me astonishing. I couldn't believe the reaction to it because I see elephants, uh, I see uh, lions being shot all the time. I mean, there are only 20,000 lions left in Africa uh, and only about three and a half thousand of those are male lions that the hunters want to shoot. So they're almost gone. That's the whole of Africa. So there are lions being shot every day. Nobody cares. But, you know, as soon as one gets into the into the newspapers, the reaction is astonishing. So the thing is this. The reality is, if those people really care around the world about preserving these last elephants about preserving these last lions and other animals rhinos then they're going to have to pay for it to keep them in the world because african countries are not by themselves they don't feel the same way about these animals they need to survive they prioritize money over the preservation of species and the only way that these animals are going to survive long term is if the west these wealthy countries are prepared to pay them to keep them alive so I believe uh, personally that the long-term solution is to declare international assets, world assets. What is a world asset? The rainforest is a world asset. National parks, the last surviving national parks, are world assets. Uh, and the fact that they happen to fall within the boundary of a country, which is probably a, a pencil line drawn by a Victorian, shouldn't give those countries the right to destroy that asset. But... If it is a world asset, then the world should be paying to keep it alive and be paying to protect it properly, if necessary, by force. 
because those are world assets. If we lose the entire rainforest, the humanity and the human race and, and the planet and everything, we're screwed. It's as simple as that. But we're not putting our money where our mouth is. And a few charities sending out disparate and generally hopeless workshops and training schemes and whatever else is not the effort that the protection of the world's last wilderness requires. Yep. Very well said. It's a great point to kind of finish up on here. Well, I mean, I really appreciate the time and the work you're doing. It's so it's, we're all fortunate, whether, you know, enough of us don't realize it yet, but we're all very fortunate to have people like you out there that are doing this, like just grueling, intensive, highly sacrificial work. So yeah, so thank you more than more than anything else. Thank you, James. No, it's been my pleasure. And thank you to the listeners. And and please, I, I would say to the listeners, please wise up as much as you can. If you're serious about wanting to save the world's last uh, wildernesses and the world's last species, people, donors need to wise up and start understanding who are the effective operators and who are the people that are just uh, making a lot of noise about it. Thank you Absolutely. for giving me the opportunity. Thanks very much. Um, yeah. Uh, just a few kind of rapid fire questions we'd like to finish up the episodes with. They'll be really, really okay. quick. Just first thing that comes to your mind. First question is, what is a, a book that you recommend people read, whether it relates to wildlife or climate or anything to do with the natural world? What's just a book that you know stands out to you that you think is a, is a worthwhile read? It's a very good question. And I know that you asked my colleague, Nar McCann, the same question. I actually think there aren't enough books about uh, this subject. I would say that Sapiens is something I enjoyed enormously. Mm. And yeah, and the author makes the point that our exploitation of the of, of wild animals and, and indeed farmed animals is, is the greatest crime on earth. And I think it puts it into perspective. I think it's a very useful book for people, for everybody to read. It's something that everybody should read at school, just to understand what we are and what we're doing to the planet. So I, I'll, I'll go with Sapiens. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And then what about uh, a film or a documentary or a series that, that you think everybody should go watch? I think when it comes to African wildlife, the stuff we've been talking about today has never really made its way into, into film. But I think inspiring people about Africa is, is very important. Mm -hmm. So, you know, beautiful films like Out of Africa, Born Free, which now looks quite old, but, you know, Born Free was the inspiration for a, uh, a huge number of people to, to, to fall in love with Africa. Uh, so I think probably the, these films are probably the things that will get you inspired about African wildlife. But to be honest, you know, my great disappointment with, with wildlife films in general is, is that they concentrate on the beautiful pictures. And indeed, David Attenborough, who I'm a big fan of, of course, everybody is, he knows that his films have painted a slightly distorted picture of the world being perfect and all these beautiful animals, when in actual fact, 90% of them might have been dying, but they didn't film that. So I think we're, we're lacking in films. And to Sir David's credit, he has in recent years acknowledged that and really come to terms yeah. with that. And I think is, is you know, in his, his latter years now, trying to sort of reverse course in that a little bit. You're right. Um, yes, he has. Yeah. yeah. And then what's, you know, from a climate change standpoint, which is a little, obviously a little broader in scope, what's the one sort of action that you think is accessible that anybody can do 
you know, I'll tell you, Niles, if you if you want. But just what's one thing that you think everybody can strive to do do this one thing or make this one change that would really help this planet? Stop eating meat. Yeah, Niles was the same. <laughs> was okay. Yeah, uh, stop eating meat. It's as simple as that. I mean, we are you know, the, the, the destruction caused, the suffering caused from just the little sensation on your tongue is just not necessary. You know, the the destruction of the rainforest, the massive, unbelievable suffering of animals and the knock-on effect for for climate change now, really, we've got to bury this. It's just not necessary for all this suffering and all the destruction of the world for a sensation on a human being's tongue, really? Is that really necessary? No, I don't think so. People need to wake up. I think too many of us act like zombies. We accept the world that we're born into and everything we've had since we were, were a child as though we're zombie machines, clones of each other. It's ridiculous. Get a grip, realize what you're doing, acknowledge the impact uh, of, of your behavior and stop it. Find a way to stop it. Because, you know, I, I don't eat meat. I've been vegan for, for 10 years. I've been vegetarian all my life. And I am the healthiest person I have ever met. I'm fit. I'm strong. And, you know, I don't have to watch what I eat. So all the myths and, and misinformation that's out there, about it is is absolute nonsense and ridiculous and people need to get a grip uh, and realize uh, what they're doing well said and then the last question would be this might be a tough one for you what is your favorite non-human animal my favorite animal yeah Uh, non-human animal because and i say that deliberately to remind all of us we are animals we are, yes, not, a good point. we are not we are not a special rank and file above we are other a variation animals. Being, and we are part of nature is a very very good way to phrase it well it's easy for me it's elephants i have a, a love-hate relationship with elephants you know i risk my life with my colleagues going out and, and, and protecting them and trying to save them but if they see me they want to kill me and uh, regularly you know cause me to to run for my life or climb a tree or whatever it might be <laughs> But I love them and I respect them. And I have to say, standing under a matriarch male, uh, sorry, matriarch uh, female elephant is the most awe-inspiring thing a human being can do. To stand under a brain four times the size of yours with the power to tear you into little pieces in a second. We don't know what they know. We don't know what information is passed on from generation to generation. Their view of the world, their view of our species and history. I mean, just to be inside an elephant's head for an hour, I'd exchange a year of my life for that. So I think without, without any doubt, elephants are the most, to me, the most remarkable creatures. They're like aliens that have landed on this earth. We know nothing about them. We tend to treat them as cattle. We tend to treat them as, as, as stupid things, there for exploitation or shooting for fun or whatever. It's a wholly ignorant viewpoint. And uh, these are incredible creatures that we know almost nothing about. So I know there were supposed to be quick fire questions. I'm sorry, James. And I can you know sympathize with you through the work I've done in Laos with elephants. I have had, you know, the, the privilege of standing beneath a, a matriarch, a female matriarch in a herd and, 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 and walking with her, you know, through, 
you know, kind of wild, relatively wild land and 150 hectares is the, the area that the organization I work with sort of governs. And they, you know, have taken these elephants obviously from former captivity and, you know, doing their best to sort of bring them back into thing, something close to the wild. And then the younger elephants, they will fully repopulate. But I've had that, I've had that opportunity to, her name's May, Maimon, to stand, you know, sort of amongst her. And you just, you feel, you know, this, this era, like you feel protected in a way, you know, especially if, if, you know, you're seen as from her standpoint, as someone that is trustworthy and as, you know, as someone that is, you know, worthy of being around the herd, you feel, yeah, you just feel like you're in the, I, the way I describe it, you feel like you're in the in presence of a goddess mm. and that you're not on the same cerebral level as her, but that's not, it's not about that. It's not about, you know, the fact that you can't communicate with like English language. It's not about that at all. It's about you're sharing space with something that is, you know, powerful and imaginative and emotional and, you know, sort of just deeply, deeply thoughtful. And and the more time you do it, the, the more you realize there is a lot going on in the, in the head of that elephant and uh, they're processing and learning and, you know, sort of having thoughts, good and bad in the same way, you know, we all do, you know, and that's, I think that's what pains me the most is we're now finally as a human species waking up to mental health as something that we, you know, acknowledge and need to, to work on. And I think of, you know, the, the, the sort of mental health anguish that so many elephants are put through, you know, mm. way, way more probably like torturous to me than, than the physical pain they have to endure sometimes, but that mental pain because of how sophisticated and emotional and social and thoughtful they are, you know, I can't imagine the sort of the PTSD, the anxiety, the depression that they have to fight through, you know, day in and day out. It's the, so well said, James. So well said. I mean, it, but it is the end of their world, it, literally the end of their world and the end of their species, which you know they've been on the earth for thirty million years or something, and it's it's a it's a tragedy, and we we will be alive when they're gone. You know, this is it. It's very unlikely that we will stop this from happening, unless a massive change happens, and so we we in our lifetimes, after tens of millions of years on earth, we will witness the end of these animals these remarkable beings it's a it's a very very sad tragedy well let's let's do everything we can you know no matter how unlikely it is to avoid that I and mean, at least at least know that we did because as you I'm said everything is, in my power yeah um, 100% to stop that and, and and you know national park rescue is one of the most effective organizations i'm very proud that that it's become what it has become and and it's making an impact and I'm very happy about that. So I, if you like, I'm one of the luckiest people in the world because I'm doing something I believe passionately about. And so thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about it today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the time. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been a pleasure and we will we will keep in touch. Thank you, James. All the best. Yeah.